Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the host. And this week, I've got Jamilica Burke, who is the Chief Strategy and Impact Officer for an organization here called Seeding Success. And we're going to be talking about a really great initiative that Seeding Success is helping to lead here all about, well, it's really all about, you know, I think ma- making Memphis and Shelby County more equitable community, but but it's called Place Matters and really has to do with why where you live um, impacts a lot of the way, you know, the, the trajectory of your life, health, income, and then um, what some strategies are, working with the community to develop some kind of strategies for addressing those disparities. So, um so, Jamilica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, let's start off with um, talking about. Well, I'm just interested in you. What's your are which are, are you from Memphis originally? And before you joined Seeding Success, what was your what's your what's your what's your story? What's your elevator? What's your personal <laughs> elevator pitch? <laughs> well, my personal elevator pitch. Well, yes, one. I was born and raised in Memphis. I was a product of Legacy Memphis City Schools, graduated from East High School, um, came out of the South Memphis community. And so for me, Memphis has always been home. I am one of those individuals that grew up, born and raised here, went off to school, lived in a few different places, but really wanted to come back home, wanted to be closer to family. But also there was so much excitement taking place here in Memphis and the possibilities of what can be. I want to be a part of that and bring a lot of the skills that I've learned along the way with me. So for myself, I am an educator by trade. Started off as a school teacher, taught elementary school for several years in Atlanta. And then that really led me on a path of school leadership, district leadership, but then going into some for-profit and nonprofit work around how do we really address the needs of families because yes, I got good marks as a teacher, was able to make progress with my students, but there were all these other factors that were out of my control that I wanted so desperately to help them with. So that really led me to doing a lot of the work in a nonprofit in terms of how do you really address all of the factors that are affecting children and families um, and what resources are needed to do it in a strategic way. Because we can do a lot of things at small scale, but we want to scale it up. For sure. Well, that's great. You know, I've met just, I feel like I've met a number of people over the years that had a similar story. People moved, moved away, had careers elsewhere, and then came back because they saw a lot of opportunity here. But also I feel like I moved here from New York City and I just feel like Memphis is a community where you can personally make a change and you can personally have an impact. And that's, um, I mean, rewarding personally, but also, you know, professionally being able to feel like you're making a difference. I just think that that is something that draws people back here. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that has definitely been my experience because some of the things that I've been able to do here, I, I would not have been able to probably do in other places. And to see the impact so quickly, it, it definitely warms the heart and gives you that motivation to keep going. So tell me, well, well first of all, what, so what neighborhood did you grow up in? I'm a neighborhood person. Mm-hmm. So I was in South Memphis. I actually grew up right on the South Parkway community. Okay. Mm-hmm. So right off Oakland in that area, right okay. in between Ellis Presley, Elvis Presley and Lamar. Okay. There's some beautiful, there's some beautiful neighborhoods back in there. I love South mm-hmm. Memphis. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about seeding success because I don't, I think uh, it's very well known in the community and education sectors, uh, perhaps not um, outside those as much. So just, so tell us, tell me a little bit about seeding success. Yeah. So seeding success, we are an organization that has been in place. We began in about 2013 And our mission and goal has always been, how can we transform inequitable systems through collaboration and smart planning? And so for us, we really work to make sure every child has the resources they need to succeed from cradle to career. One, by improving the way institutions, community organizations, and policies really work together to support community. So think of us kind of a convener, a backbone, or just Come on, let's come into this room and have this dialogue and conversation. So Seeding Success doesn't deliver services to students. Is that correct? Correct. We are not a direct service provider. You're on the systems and the policy level. And and we're more of a convener. So we work to bring together, when you think about your out-of-school partners, after-school partners, governmental agencies, um, getting more into the community of bringing parents and youth to the table, how do we build, a, I would say, a container to where they can all come and have shared understanding, shared voice in decisions and strategies that are developed moving forward? Okay. That sounds great. So let's talk about place matters. And, and before we talk about place matters, the initiative, I want to talk about sort of small P, small M. Yeah. Why does Why does place matter? to a family. I mean, we. I think I've heard about this. People call it zip code disparities, especially in the health context. You know, there's a connection between, you know, what zip code you live in and ha- what your health outcomes are for your entire life. But of course, it's much bigger than that. So, so why does place matter in how families, you know, individuals and families do in their lives? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. And place matters just for that reason. Where someone lives often determines how they live and what resources are available to them. You can have by zip code or by neighborhood level or by redlining, you'll have these opportunities or these approaches that can be accessible to some, but not to all. And the research around that, we've had generations of systemic racism that have compounded these inequities. And that has really prevented many people, especially people of color, from thriving. And so when you think about some of the Place Matters work, I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with Raj Chetty, but he's an economist that has been doing a lot of research around mobility, which is what does it take from a person at the lower quartile to reach that top quartile? Over the so mo- so mobility, income mobility, not physical mobility. Exactly. Income mobility. And so when you looked at a lot of his research and what they've been able to put together, it's called Opportunity Atlas, if anyone would like to look that up and see more information about it. But you can literally see by zip code and almost down to street 
by the percent of mobility or the chance of you being able to advance from that lower quartile to the top quartile. And what's been interesting about that, there have been some communities that have been able to use that information to help make decisions around where are we going to put more affordable housing, where are we going to do more investments in schools. So using that information strategically to help develop, thinking about because place matters, where do we need to be putting the resources and supports in place to ensure that we're creating that pathway for families to be successful? Well, just it kind of boggles your mind that, I mean, I, and I've seen some of the research, like people that live a mile from each other exactly. or one or one exit on the expressway from each other. People that live geographically close can have c- completely different outcomes. Like, like I said, it's just sort of, you know, wrapping your mind around that. It's just seems so, really, it seems unfair. And I think, like you said, systemic racism. And also, of course, I'm an urban planner, my mm-hmm. education anyway. I mean, urban sprawl, which yeah. of course has its roots in racism, among other things, but urban sprawl, the community just spreading out mm-hmm. and, um, and you know, the amenities moving out to where people have to have cars to take it. It's very complicated. We get, I don't even want to go down yeah. that rabbit hole. Get into the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to have that conversation with you. Yes, it's 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 really it's really incredible. So what's the um, so what's the Place Matters initiative that um, the seeding success is helping to facilitate? Um, yeah, just give us the that in a nutshell, and then I've got some follow up questions. Yeah, in a nutshell, Place Matters, the Place Matters initiative that we're doing here in Memphis is really working to address what we just talked about. How can we really improve? the social and economic outcomes of families and the way that our community has been defined it is by how do we create the avenues of building wealth, creating a greater sense of community, a greater sense of liberation here in Shelby County by bringing together all the different actors that have to be at the table to help make those decisions. When you think about the families that are most impacted by the systems that are not, that are working against them. When you think about some of the experts in those areas, government officials, school systems, nonprofits, how do you really operationalize an approach to where you can bring those individuals to the table? There's shared ownership and shared power and shared authority to make decisions. When you think about collaboration, it's really messy, but the reward at the end, as you go through a process like that, it can be very rewarding and it helps with sustainability. Well, I know that that um, Memphis is one of a few cities that's doing this work. I mean, doing the official place. Of course, this kind of work's being done in other places, but the official sort of place matters initiative. So how was how did Memphis come to uh, be a, a place matters site, if that's the right word? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I think nationally, everyone just looks at Memphis as that place that's special, that if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. Because but it's hard. We, it's hard. But we have resilient people. We have dynamic individuals that are doing great things. But a large part of it is just having the resources and access in order to actualize and scale what it is you're looking to do. So Memphis was really chosen for the track record that we have in terms of working together to work towards improving outcomes for families and kids. And especially thinking about some of the work that has been done in latter years of just really aligning local and state government and resources with what's taking place on the ground. We think about community development and other items. 
Well, and how did seeding seeding success? I mean, I know there's some you know national and local funders. How did seeding success um, get into this sort of backbone role, or for really you're facilitating, you know, sort of a, like you said, a messy but important uh, effort? How did you end up in this role, and um, and how does it kind of fit in with your mission? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So going back, we are looking to improve outcomes for kids and families cradle to career. And a large part of that, yes, you mentioned earlier, we initially started out looking at it from the education lens. But as you get into that work, you also see that about 69% of the factors that are affecting kids from performing well in school are out of school factors. So you have to start to look at it from how do you address the other systemic barriers where you're thinking about health, housing, public safety, culture, um, youth development. When you're starting to start factoring in all those pieces, it becomes a bigger picture that you have to start looking into. So initially our organization started in convening partners to have discussions around outcomes and improving educational outcomes. As we got into the work, we're having success in really developing some of these strategies. It became a larger discussion about now, how do we start to bring in some of these other sector representatives to help engage in those conversations? And for us, that first step was looking at education and housing. And now that is being built with the resources that are coming in in partnership with Blue Meridian Partners of how do we now start to look at this systemically across our community in six areas. And so So for us, it was go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead and I'll have a follow-up question. Yeah, so the only thing I was going to say to sum that up was thinking about the trajectory of the work, we have always been that backbone organization in that convener. And so now we're in a role of really helping to project manage this work and helping to facilitate and bring community and partners together to have this dialogue about how do we really create the strategies that are needed for long-term success. So you, I think you mentioned that Seednik Success and I knew, of course, was focused on the education sector initially, but you also said you were working some in the housing space mm-hmm. before before Place Matters. Is that right? Or did I misunderstand? No, you didn't misunderstand. So, yes, we actually, one of our first kind of steps of testing the water in terms of, well, how can we start to look at bringing education partners together with housing partners? Because there was an interesting discussion, especially right before COVID and as COVID was, um, the pandemic was beginning, to understand we have all this data and information around students and schools and where they live, but then you have other challenges in terms of, in this instance, their physical mobility, that has been a challenge of understanding where they are, access to broadband, access to food scarcity. So what would it look like if we could align some of the data around education and some of the data around housing and bring it together to start strategically looking at, okay, these are the areas where we really need to be doing some more investments, or this is where partners, out-of-school partners can really focus their time and energy in order to really help lift up the community in these key areas, because it's just helping to make it more data-informed decisions and building on the great work that's already taken place. Well, and I'm certainly familiar with some of the implementation that's taken place locally, like in, you know, the Frasier, yes. you know, the, the, the housing development that... Um, mm-hmm that a number of providers have done around the school zone and Frasier to Mm -hmm. sort of tie those things together. And um, of course that makes a lot of sense. That Mm -hmm. sounds like a, you know, a very, a very logical approach. So basically you're, so basically you're the Sydney success model 
which you've been using in education and housing, is being expanded to four other domains, and then um, and and that's the place matters. Am I sort of capturing that right? To an extent, I wouldn't say that it's the seeding success model, but what we're looking at, these are some of the best practices that have worked. And there's other organizations that are doing great work. As you know, there have been a lot of strategic plans, a lot of initiatives that have taken place in our community. What are the lessons learned from all of these things that have taken place that we can bring together? And it's more about the alignment and coordination across okay. those areas, because each one may look slightly different depending on the actors and what's needed. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Jamilica Burke, who's the Chief Strategy and Impact Officer for Seeding Success. And we're talking about uh, a new a new-ish initiative in Memphis called Place Matters. So, uh, so uh, I know that I wanted, without, without, um, going down too much of a rabbit hole again, I do want you to talk a little bit about the planning process because I know there's lots of organizations involved and there's a big emphasis on, you know, lead leadership from community-based organizations, I think to make sure that the, you know, the plan makes sense and is authentic mm-hmm. and truly addresses what the community wants and needs. Um, so just elaborate a little bit on that planning process, what that looks like, and who who some of the other partners are. No, absolutely. So we officially started this work when we found out that we were going to be the grant recipients in September of 2020. But even before then, we were already convening partners. Our partnership is probably about 100-ish organizations that have been coming together to just have this dialogue conversation about what do we need to do to, one, better work together, Um, work within finite resources in order to address some of the systemic challenges of our families here in our community. The way that this conversation really started around the planning process, many times we start a planning process, you hand select a few people, you go into a room, you kind of build out the framework, then introduce it and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Through this process to begin, and what we went through was actually, and this was created through having ongoing conversations with our partnership around How can we create a process to where we're bringing in new and different voices into the process and having representation from the different sectors and backgrounds in our community? And so that impetus really became the design committee. So what that process looked like in the beginning was members of our community were able to nominate individuals that they thought would be really strong in representing different neighborhoods, different sectors, different backgrounds, different expertise that can come together and have a conversation. If we were to do this planning work well in Memphis, what needs to be true? So through that nomination process, we had about 170-ish individuals that were nominated, and we were trying to get that down to about 25 to have a planning group. But through that process, we had seat selections to where if you were nominated to be in a particular sector, all of those individuals were came together, had dialogue, conversation, and they decided who would represent them in the work. And looking at- What I'm remembering also is that people were compensated, unlike a lot of planning processes where the communities asked to come, the, those people in those, leadership, in those leadership positions were compensated for their time. That's important. Absolutely. No, that's very important. And that was lifted up as being very important here. And so with that, we were able to, what we call it is pay for participation. How do we remove barriers? So they had an opportunity to say, if I wanted to be paid through 
um, cash or if it was, I actually really need support in having Wi-Fi or I need a computer because this wasn't still in the virtual space when we began. I may need a computer so, or I may need some childcare. So whatever resource we can use, they kind of added up to that dollar amount. We made an opportunity for that to happen. And the other piece that I would say that was really important in the planning process is that as project managers, I would say that there were some defined timelines, but as conversations took place and things were brought up and we th and more time was needed, more time was given. And so there was, and it, it allowed for space for people to continue in a dialogue to say, you know, for this to be true, this is what we'll need. And through that work, they were able to develop the mission statement, vision statement, what are the outcomes and focus areas that we need to focus on as a community. And that really led to how do we bring even more people to the table between that 2530 to where now it became 60 with having four summer planning committees that really focused on governance, branding, community engagement, equity, COVID-19 um, resources and investments. So that way it can be very targeted in developing what would be the guidelines that we're going to use as we um, bring this to the broader uh, community. Where we are right now in the process uh, for the last year, we've been working on many of those pieces. Um, ideally, by the end of the year, many of those guidelines would be finalized and we would have been able to stand up a governing body, um, identify organizations within our community that will be actually leading the conversation with the community around each of those six focus areas. Because it's not about the ownership of seeding success, but it's really about really supporting the community in this dialogue and this conversation to develop those long-term strategies. So, so the 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 end result of this phase of the work will be a plan. Is that right? Yes. So, for this phase of the work that we're entering into, it will be one bringing more individuals from our community to the table to inform the decisions and the strategies that will be developed. And yes, that would lead to the ultimate creation of a social economic plan. And the ultimate goal of that work is not just writing a plan, but making sure we're able to implement and sustain it. So we're also having government at the table so that we can really have dialogue around how do we ensure that this is sustainable? How do we ensure that we're able to pay for it? How do we know, um, how are we able to align other federal resources when you think about TANF and ARPA and um, ESSA funds that are already going coming into Memphis? How do we ensure that that's really aligned and coordinated in an effective way to support kids and families? Well, and does, do you anticipate, and maybe you don't know yet, but do you anticipate that seeding success will be um, continue to play a facilitating role? Because I know from working on, you know, large community development plans, you know, someone's got to someone's got to raise the money. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you may, even you have community governance, someone's got to actually raise the money to do it. And that's, um, that's a big, I mean, it's important work. It's going to be a big, and like you said, some of it's aligning existing resources. I totally understand that, but mm -hmm. there's probably got to have to be new money too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I completely agree with that. And so in our role as seeding success, what we have also committed to is really helping to identify additional resources to bring to this work through the planning phase, but also through the implementation phase. And so a large part of that work is taking place now too. And can people still get involved? I mean, and certainly in the podcast, you know, usually the show notes, the podcast version of the show, there's 
there's show notes and I'll obviously will link to the Place Matters website. And mm-hmm. But are, are there still opportunities for people to get involved? Oh, absolutely. Let me be clear. We are, even though we've been at this a year, we are still in the very beginning part of this work. Where we are right now is we're just working to stand up kind of the infrastructure that will support the planning. But what we're looking to do at the top of next year is really do extensive outreach and recruitment to different neighborhoods and communities across Memphis and Shelby County to bring parents, to bring more youth, to bring more individuals that may be interested in having discussions in one of the focus areas to come to the table and really help over the next year, because this will be at least a year planning process that would support over the next year the development of those long-term strategies that would ultimately be, become part of that plan. Okay, so to, yes. to, to sort of really get wonky, so what you're really doing now is you're creating the framework for the planning. Exactly, we're just creating, we're just, what we call it, we're designing. So we're designing okay. the framework to okay. where what I call this phase one and the phase two of the work that we're looking to launch more towards the top of next year would be around the engagement of the broader community, bringing everyone to the table to be a part of these conversations over okay. the next year. So, yes. So it sounds like there's lots of opportunities. There's going to be there lots of opportunities, opportunities for people to plug in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's great. Yeah. And it's more than just, you know, having them come to the table and look at something, but authentically engaging, looking at the data, being a part of the discussions, um, bringing in their own experiences to the table to really shape what does this need to look like for Memphis? And it's not just at the kind of I'm at the planning level or kind of the developing strategy level, but what the partnership has identified is that, look, we want a majority of these work groups to be members of our community. And when I say members of our communities, communities, uh, members that have already current that are currently being impacted by the systems that we're looking to change. So here's a hard question. Okay. So, you know, Memphis has not, um, has not, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of neighborhood investments and, but Memphis hasn't really moved the needle on poverty in a long time. Mm-hmm. And despite a lot of different efforts. Um, mm-hmm. So what makes you, you know, optimistic that this can, that these, this disconnect between where someone lives and their access to opportunities and their life outcomes, that that can be disrupted. So, um, so it is a more equitable community um, and everyone has access to what they need to thrive. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of things. I mean, first I would say a large part of the planning efforts and work that has taken place to date, a lot of people will say that, you know, it was very siloed or it was in particular sectors, particular neighborhoods, and there was never a time where those conversations could really come together. Or you may have multiple organizations and multiple initiatives doing similar things. Part of this work, I think, which is really unique is that the pandemic has also offered us an opportunity to bring together people that typically before the pandemic may not have been at the same table. So really capitalizing on the opportunities in front of us to really convene, have dialogue, have the discussion. And I think everyone is at that place of planning exhaustion because to your point, we have been doing this type of work for decades. It's like, okay, I'm tired. How do we really now do this (laughs) to get it done? 
Well, and, I agree. I mean, although it's, I'm, I'm sure it's some people are just discouraged and cynical. I mean, I've done yeah. a lot of community meetings, community plans over the years, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. And people are yeah. just like, oh, give me a break. You're asking me another survey. Mm-hmm. I mean, so so what? So I think what I'm hearing is that, the, and 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 this makes sense to me based on what I've heard about the Place Matters Initiative. Is that it's even though even though seeding success is in a facilitation a, a facilitation role, it's not a top down planning process with a bunch of the usual suspects in a room together deciding what the community needs. Exactly. Exactly. So the gold standard or the gold star is getting to that point to where it really is the community helping to really strategically decide what would be those priorities and strategies that we would invest in as a community to improve mobility or to help build wealth in our communities, especially when you're thinking about our families of color. And, and I would be and being fully transparent. Yes, it has been hard. It has been challenging. There have been a lot of challenging, difficult, intense conversations. But one thing that I've really appreciated about this process is that people are still at the table. People are still having the conversation. People are still grappling with the big questions of how do we do this well? And a large part of this is also which has been brought up many times by our partnership is thinking about, we know that we want to have more members of our communities that are being impacted. How do we ensure that we're removing barriers to ensure that they can fully participate? That's a huge question. How do we really start to tap into smaller grassroots organizations that are doing great work on the ground, but typically may not be part of these type of quote unquote processes? How do we authentically identify and find them help support them in bringing it, being at the table, which is why I think a large part of what we're looking at to do this differently as well is there's a lot of emphasis and support and resources being put into building capacity and capability. Capacity of these graduates organizations to, to participate in the planning process, but also to even have a greater impact doing the work they're already doing. Exactly. And those are some of the big questions that we're still grappling with now. So love to even as you, as people listen to this podcast, love to just hear more insight in terms of how can we really do that effectively and do that well? Well, it's interesting because I'm sure one thing, you know, you've encountered is, you know, what the community thinks, you know, wants and needs isn't necessarily what the institutional partners think at all. Exactly. I mean, that's a that's I mean, you know, bringing everyone to the table you know, with equal voice and then wrestling through those, that takes some skilled facilitation um, because, I mean, people, I mean, people at the institutional level, whether it's, you know, at the high level of government or people who, you know, are senior foundation leaders, I mean, people, they do, everyone comes into these processes with their biases and it's hard to, Mm -hmm. um, to, to, to make those connections sometimes and to build consensus. Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say that's still what we're working through right now is how do you authentically do that well? So one thing that we've been working with and even just the other communities that are doing this work, we've been having some ongoing dialogue about like, I want to understand like how are other communities grappling with this and address yes. some of those needs? What are ways that we can make it not just about planning, but also make it fun and exciting and just to energize the individuals that we want to that we want to make sure are part of the work and then again 
making sure that majority of the resources that are most of the resources that are coming into Memphis are staying in Memphis and really focused on the individuals, organizations, institutions that we need at the table in order for this to be different. And that takes time. Well, and I got to think that, I mean, the optimist in me just thinks it's got to have to be broad community support for this because, mm-hmm. I mean, I think everyone can agree that, you know, if you live in Orange Mound or you live in Germantown, I mean, you shouldn't have the same, you know, it shouldn't be health disparities, educational disparities, income disparities, just by virtue of where you live. Everyone should have access to the same opportunities to mm-hmm. to thrive as a family. So Right, right. And to your point, when you're when you're bringing such diverse perspectives and um, opinions and, and just ideas to the table, people are very passionate about what they're passionate about. And you want to honor that and you want to make sure that they're heard and that it is understood. And then it's what are those steps that have that we have to take in order to make sure that we're building relationships, that we're building trust, because those things take time. But at the same time, it's also that balance of, we also know that there are windows of opportunities when resources would be available in order to even implement the things that they would want to see done. So it's a balancing act and it's just, it's really just rolling up your sleeves and really committing to be at the table to continue to grapple with those things. Okay, last question. Do you, and and I realize, you know, the the planning isn't, you know, the planning per se hasn't really started, but do you anticipate that, you know, policy and policy change will be a component of the plan? I'm very interested in policy. And of course, you know, a lot of just a lot of, you know, decisions about where things are located, where things aren't located are ultimately, you know, in the fine print of policy. And policy changes sometimes need to be made to make really to increase equity in, you know, in the decision-making that, that leads to these, you know, zip code disparities. So do you see that as something that will be um, a policy component to the plan? Absolutely. That's almost the main component to the plan. So as part of this work is working with community to really look at data and evidence of our community in comparison to other national standards to really understand what, where and how we need to focus, what would be those zip codes and neighborhoods, what would be those tracks that we need to look at as part of the strategy development. And yes, a large part of this, the reason we also have kind of governmental entities, the public sector business at the table as well. If you have everyone on the front end at the table as part of planning, it helps later on when you're looking to have it um, codified and adopted into law because that is a significant portion of the work for sustainability. Because even if you had all philanthropic dollars, that would not be enough to implement a plan of the scale that would be needed if we're talking about building wealth, eradicating poverty, improving mobility in Memphis. It will take an investment from the private sector, the public sector, when you're looking at local, state, and federal level. So how do you start to do that coordination? So part of the work over the planning period as well would be to look at where are those opportunities for public investments? Like how can we work with our public entities and our elected officials to kind of think through and grapple with some of those questions as well so that they can think through how 
um, local government, state government can help support these types of efforts in our community. Some success that we're starting to see that when you think about some of the TANF dollars that would be coming to different communities across the state, how can we even ensure like the work that's taking place there is helping to align in to evidence and to things that are working so we can help to scale and improve some of those areas and outcomes that we're looking to have as the ultimate work in Memphis. Like all of it doesn't need to fall under the umbrella of Place Matters Memphis. That's not the intent. But how do we really ensure that we're creating that ecosystem here in Memphis that everything is starting to work together? Okay. Okay. This is exciting. Um looking forward to hearing more about it. You know, my passion is neighborhoods. And yes. I always say everyone ought to live in a neighborhood that's clean mm-hmm. and safe and has good schools, has stores, Absolutely. has community facilities, amenities, mm-hmm. and everyone needs that. Mm-hmm. And so this sounds like it supports that. Um, yes. It supports that. So I'm very excited about it. So, um, so I've been, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Jamilica Burke, who is with Seeding Success. We've been talking about the Place Matters Initiative. And thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped up about this now. No, thank you so much <laughs> for having me. This is a really enjoyable conversation. And I'm glad I had an opportunity to connect and have this discussion because, like I said, a large part of this work would be getting the word out for people to know that it's taking place so that we can have a bigger tent of those that are engaged in solutions creation. For sure. So stay tuned, everyone, for more about Place Matters over the next year, especially 2022, sounds like. Sign up for emails if you want to learn more and get involved. It's an important process. And thank you. Everyone, everyone who listens to Memphis Metropolis needs to be part of it. Yes, please do. Thank you so much and enjoyed it. And I'll definitely be back again soon. Okay, great. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to the second half of Memphis Metropolis, everybody. This portion of the show, I'm joined by regular commentator Cole Bradley. Welcome back, Cole. Hello. Good to see you and talk to you again, Emily. Well, and I'm excited to talk about this subject with you because this is a subject that you and I have talked about, um, you know, disparities between neighborhoods. And so I feel like there's there's quite a few things to that I want to sort of pick your brain about, as it were. But first of all, just tell me, um, you know, I don't know how much you knew about the Place Matters Initiative, um, which is, of course, based in Seeding Success, which I talked about in the first half of the show. So um, what were your, I know you listened to that interview, what were your, some of your reflections about about the initiative and its um, its approach to trying to, you know, better connect people with opportunities? You know, I think m- my first thought is always, who what a big undertaking, right? This is such a complex issue. And I think that's the exact point of all of this is to acknowledge and to, uh, you know, work to within that, 
within the limits of such a complex problem, right? You can't solve any one problem, any one piece of this without touching anything else. And so that was my very first thought was, whew, man, what, what complex and difficult work. But then my next thought uh, was, I really like the capacity building component. So to me, beyond just, you know, most programs these days, most initiatives, most whatevers involve some level of community engagement, but sometimes it is still very much superficial level, right? It's uh, just going and you have host one or two meetings, you run a couple of concepts by some folks, answer a couple of questions, ask for a little bit of feedback, and then who knows whether or not that actually gets incorporated later down the line. With this, a focus on capacity building is different, right? You're working to actually create skills, leadership opportunities, uh, knowledge base, uh, et cetera, within the community. And then also this feels, seems, uh, appears to be a lot more collaborative than just having a, a single workshop or two and asking for a bit of feedback and maybe you incorporate it, maybe you don't. This feels like true, truly deeper collaborative work. And that is absolutely core and critical to any kind of change making, right? You can't, we can't work top down anymore in communities. We have got to stop doing that. Community members in affected areas have got to be included in a core level, not just lip service. They have truly got to be included in solutioning, creating those solutions. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to work. They're not going to truly serve the need. I completely agree. And and after I, um, I'm reflecting back a little bit on my discussion on a show a couple weeks ago with Justin Merrick from Center for Transforming Communities. And you were on that program as well. And we talked about that, about how so much community engagement, even well-meaning community engagement is, is by definition top down uh, because that's, I mean, whether or not it's, whether or not there's sometimes there's a sincere desire to get input from the community. And sometimes it's, um, a, a, a regulatory requirement and the conveners are fulfilling that requirement. But either way, I mean, even under the best circumstances, the, 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 the people that are live in the neighborhoods and the most impacted are not really the decision makers. And I agree about the, this place matters initiative. And I'm, you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding and there's always going to be critics, but it did. I mean, just the fact that they, um, it started last, it's, it's gone for a year. And during that year, they've been building the framework to start planning. And it's, and I mean, that seems like a long time, but it's because it's slow you know, it's the building blocks. It's setting the framework. They they're calling it design, but um, but they've been doing that for a year before they even start the planning process. And so, to me, that means I mean, obviously, they've got resources to allocate to it. But to me, that shows a you know an authentic commitment to really building yeah. building the building the plan, and then. And hopefully that is more likely 
that the implementation will be successful. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. You know, oftentimes the front end of these things are rushed and that front end involves a lot of relationship building. It involves a lot of trust building and it also involves a lot of really careful planning and it particularly if you're including community members, if you're working to collaborate with them from the onset, right? Even from the planning phase which is what you should be doing, a truly uh, collaborative and, uh, I don't know, a fancy word for it, but really a level engagement, right? No top down, no bottom up, you know, just a level engagement. Everyone comes together. Uh, You know, if you're looking to do that, that work takes time and it takes time on the front end, right? You have to, it's when you are capacity building, it is slow work. People don't come to the table with those skills. And so, yeah, to me, I agree with you 100%. Taking that time on the front end to really plan it out right shows a level of commitment that we often don't see. You know, you want to, if you got to save money somewhere, and a lot of it, like, let's be fair, a lot of it comes down to funding. If you have to, if your funding is incredibly limited, then you're going to put that funding more towards implementation than planning, right? And so, uh, the value showing that showing the value by putting time and money behind it now is a bit different than most people do these types of things. And it takes really takes very skilled facilitation and a totally different approach. You know, I was for, you know, briefly involved with a, a, a big um, initiative here in Memphis called Spark, which is you know, ah, yeah, yeah. prosperity around equity, environment, and health, and um, and that was you know not as big, but as but a but similar in its focus on community decision making. Yeah, and that was so, you know, that was a, a challenge for me personally because. Although I completely agree with the the end goals and the process, I'm a I'm an impatient, you know, check the box, move on, deadlines, and that is not you can't be you can't be successful. Um, I felt like I would need to have a personality transplant <laughs> to to really. So I'm I'm um I mean kudos to to that team for really digging in and doing it right. For sure. So, so let's, um, let, but let's back up and talk a little bit, um, about this, the notion of, you know, place Place mattering, place (laughs) mattering, place mattering. And, you know, there's, you know, the last 10 years or so there's been a lot of research about it, particularly in the health arena. Um, and, but just share some thoughts with me about that, because you and I have talked about this. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I think ultimately, when you look at all of the various factors that go into uh, health, happiness, well-being over a lifespan of an individual, right? You know, life and the pursuit of happiness. Place, in my mind, is arguably the most important factor particularly when it comes to physical health and mental health. Uh, But in general, everything is really tied to location. Now, 
we do have like a chicken or the egg conversation, right? One of the reasons why we have such major disparity in place here in Memphis, why we have long running jokes that everybody talks about, well, if you don't like the neighborhood, go two streets over and it's completely different. The reason that we have these, you know, one neighborhood is million dollar homes and it butts up to a neighborhood with $50,000 homes that nobody can get a loan for is because factor these other factors go into it, right? Like race, like class. Uh, and so you can argue that, and that these places were created, these disparities rather in these places were created because of these big social factors, but now they're perpetuating them, right? They're self-sustaining at this point. The wheel is moving on its own because you have communities that are completely depreciated or depleted, uh, oppressed and robbed of resources and people and talent. And you have others where those things uh, are focused in on, right? So there's this deep, deep disparity that's continuing to perpetuate itself at this point. And so I would argue that place matters more than even individual uh, desire, individual skill, individual health, place matters more. What are the elements of place that have, have an impact on health? Oh man, so hard. So one is obviously environment, right? You've got environments where we know based on countless studies that things like toxic dumping, landfills, um, companies that are chemically based, uh, you know, oil refiners, et cetera. All of these places we know for a fact, based on multiple studies, are more likely to be cited in not just low income communities, but specifically communities of color and more specifically native and black communities. We know this to be true. So that alone, let's take the okay. toxicity yeah, so that, that's one big category. Yeah, sure. And other things go into that too, like, uh, you know, where the highways are located in proximity to your home, uh, what the water looks like and flooding. Flooding is another really big one, right? That goes into it. But also things like, do you have parks and green spaces that are available for your physical and your mental health as well? Uh, do you have community, a sense of safety, a sense of community amongst the people that live near and around you? Do you have access to jobs? Like, come on. Do Are there jobs available that are good and well-paying jobs that people in your community can access? Do you have education that is quality and affordable, you know, free education or affordable education for everyone, right? That gives everyone an equal opportunity later in life. When we talk about cradle, cradle to career, right? How do we get kids from cradle to career in an equitable fashion, you have to look at what opportunities are available in that neighborhood that they're growing up in. Um, you know, is it over-policed? Is it under-policed? Is there a lot of criminality, uh, criminal elements and criminal things happening that in some ways make the community safer because maybe law enforcement isn't around, but in some ways make it less safe, right? Um, blight. Well, in safety. It, oh, blight for sure. And safety is tied into how comfortable people feel Absolutely. being outside their home Absolutely. and participating in, you know, very basic physical activity. I mean, yeah. There's just so many dots to connect. And one you didn't mention is um, access to healthy food options. Uh, well, I don't even know how I managed to forget that. I, I mean, I live in an area that, uh, you know, 
the grocery store that is within access is uh, about to close. And so we're in a food desert. Uh, most of a goodly portion of Memphis is food desert, the city proper. And even if it's not a food desert, one thing that I think that we forget in this conversation, geography is not everything when it comes to food access. If you don't have the money to access that food, then it doesn't matter if it's close by or not. Or if it's only a couple of miles away, it's great that there's public transportation, but how are you going to carry it, right? There's so much that goes in. Transportation is another one we didn't talk about. Transportation, available public transportation and multimodal transportation. Can people ride their bikes or walk safely through the neighborhood, right? All of these are indicators of place and things that I think y'all discussed this in the earlier part of this uh this conversation. And I'll reiterate it here that, um, you know, it's, this is a universal want and a universal need to have health, healthy and happy neighborhoods and communities where you can raise your kids, where you can exist and um, thrive as a, as a person. Right. Well, and, and one thing that Jim, the, I, I should say, and pe- hopefully people have been listening since the beginning of the show, but my first guest was Jamilica Burke from Seeding Success, who's, you know, coordinating a lot of this Place Matters work. Um, and, and, and you know, we talked about a lot of these things. One thing I didn't get a chance to ask her um, is that, you know, in the community development arena, there has been some discussion and I think some pilots of programs to actually move people into areas of opportunity instead of bringing resources into, you know, disadvantaged areas. And, and obviously that's not what the place matters and is about. Um, but, and I don't know whether you have any thoughts about that or not. You know, I think that's, it's like anything else. There are pros and cons, Right. My very first initial thought is people shouldn't have to leave their communities, right? Some of these communities, particularly in Memphis, and it's not exclusive to Memphis, in any city, in any area, some of the communities that are most heavily disinvested, most heavily, uh, you know, just struggling, let's, let's just be real, struggling, right, are communities that have been, that are historic, those communities have been there since the beginning of Memphis or close to it, right? People have been consistent in those neighborhoods for generations sometimes. People shouldn't have to leave their space and place in order to find the things that they need for a happy and healthy, thriving life, right? Now that said, there's also an argument in Memphis that we really need to have people moving back into the center city. Uh, we need to pull our size back down because that's yep. one way to to have a more fiscally responsible and responsive community is we're huge ge- ge- geographically. So I do think that it would be an interesting uh, proposition to like encourage rather than encouraging people who are in currently disinvested communities, right, to leave and go to the the nice quote unquote nicer neighborhoods. What those neighborhoods that are typically those more disinvested, they're more often more in the center city. So what if we were encouraging people to come back in, but also fighting against that big, you know, that horrible monster that always sits above everything, which is gentrification. The problem with people moving back into the center city, there's no inherent problem to moving people back in. 
The problem comes when you don't put any sort of mechanisms in place to protect the current community, right? I think the solution is in is bringing those resources back into these communities that are in the center city to encourage people to come in, but also protecting the existing communities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I mean, you're right. Um, it would be great if if Memphis would shrink a bit. Um, I mean, setting aside individual lives and families would for sure be more um, more efficient. And and there's a lot of, um, you know, blood and distressed areas on the fringes. Yeah. And I've certainly heard conversations like, like, let's just pick up, pick on North Haven for a minute and nothing against the, you know, the fine folks who live in North Haven. But it's, you know, it's a little, it's kind of a little hamlet um, in Shelby County outside of Memphis. And there is a lot of blight there. And, you know, does it make sense to invest? Again, having a little academic argument here. Does it make it, does it make sense to invest further in North Haven or to go to the, you know, the relatively small number of people that live there and say, hey, we'll help you move to Klondike Smoky City. We'll help you buy a house. Yeah. on paper, that sounds there. great. Or South Memphis, these areas that have a lot of vacancy, right? Yes. There's no need to displace current communities in these areas that have been heavily, heavily, um, you know, had a lot of out-migration of folks back in the 70s through like the 90s, early 2000s, right? These are the families, black, white, and every other color that have moved out to Cordova, uh, have moved out to Germantown or Bartlett. Uh, or the, the the neighboring counties, DeSoto County and Mississippi, or even folks who moved out into Hickory Hill and Whitehaven, right? Who came, their families came, most of them, a lot of them came from the core neighborhoods more in South Memphis and North Memphis, but then wound up moving out to Raleigh, to Frazier, to Whitehaven, to Hickory Hill. What if there was encouragement that was also protective of the existing communities that encouraged people, businesses, et cetera, to come back to these center cities, because ultimately that's the best decision or the best solution for all Memphians. It's not to encourage people to keep moving out of those communities because they don't have anything there to offer their residents. That's not the solution. We can't sustain that from a geography standpoint. We can't afford our EMS system if we keep doing that, right? Emergency medical system. We need to come back in geographically. We just have to protect the center city. And the people there, what's happening currently, as we see with all of our housing stuff and the the housing market, is that there's no protection for for, um, consideration for what happens when demand increases like that, right? Yep. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, that was a little bit of a digression, but an interesting one. (laughs) So, but we're going to have to leave it at that. We're out of time. So, but I'm looking forward to hearing how this Place Matters initiative rolls out and what some of the, hopefully they'll be able to secure resources to implement some of the recommendations in the plan, because it's going to cost a lot of money. Some of it would be aligning existing resources, as Jamelica said, but it's going to, there'll be some big investments needed to, um, to make some of these places, to make all the, all places matter the same. Let's just say yes. that. All so, places matter the same. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, I've been talking to Cole Bradley, one of our regular commentators. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis. So thanks for coming on the show, Cole.
you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.